Hi, it's Michael. Before we begin, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for following along. This work has taken about six years to produce. Researching, writing, producing this has been a real dream of mine. And the fact that anyone has found interest and value in what we've recorded, I have to say, uh, it's, it's a thrill. So thank you. If you like what you heard, please share it with someone else. You can follow us on How to Start a War Pod on Instagram or sign up for updates at howtostartawar.com. Thank you. And now, on with the story. Dark clouds are beginning to cast a shadow over the tall, grassy plains of Upper Silesia. The landscape is green, the fields of long grass swaying in the breeze, the blocked-out sun beginning to set over the region on the German border with Poland. It's so quiet. In the distance, you can see dark silhouettes of trees standing alone under the vast darkening sky, the troubling clouds turning overhead. Out here is a contrast from distant Berlin, where desperate statesmen were scrambling, diplomats exhausting themselves to the very last moment. These skies only seemed to allude to the skies over the capital city, darkened not by clouds, but by aircraft flying eastward towards the Polish border. No, not here. Out here, all you can hear are the crickets, treating us to an early overture of their evening orchestra. Out here, if you closed your eyes, it was peaceful, serene, a world away, undisturbed by the troubles of man. Thousands of engines of panzer tanks ignited. Propeller motors of more than 2,000 aircraft puffed out black plumes of smoke as they awoke. 66 divisions of infantry, over a million men, moved into formation as marching orders were given. Together, after years of design, secret development, and manufacturing, this mechanized chorus, this great monster of a tyrant's war machine, roared to life for the very first time and lurched forward towards the Polish border. The order to invade has been given, and the war would begin the moment the border was crossed, a few short hours from now. It is August 26th, 1939, the day Hitler had chosen to start the war.
In Berlin, the warlord's mind was racing. Since the deal with Stalin, effectively granting Hitler permission to invade, his largest obstacle to starting his war with Poland had been removed. But there were still other countries, like England and France, that threatened to turn this regional dispute with Poland into a general war. A kind of war that Germany, unless it could be won quickly and with a lot of luck, would not be prepared for. A war with England and France would not be a war Germany could win. Hitler sat in his office and considered what had happened over the last frantic days across Europe. Days ago, France had mobilized 300,000 of their reserves on the border of Germany and France, bringing a daunting invasion threat, a loaded gun pointed at the back of Germany's head if war broke out. Earlier in the day, Hitler had fired off a telegram to his idol and ally, the fascist dictator of Italy, Benito Mussolini, alerting him that the German invasion of Poland was imminent. But Mussolini had not yet replied to Hitler, and it was starting to worry him. Hitler had given the order to begin the forward march at 3 o'clock this afternoon, which would cross the Polish border at dawn tomorrow morning. After that, he ordered the severing of all communications outside of Germany. He notified all German diplomats that were stationed in Poland, England, and France to leave their posts immediately and return to Germany by the quickest route. It was now six o'clock in the evening, three hours since the order to march had been given. The silence from Rome was beginning to be a cause for concern. At that very moment, the Italian ambassador finally appeared at the door of Hitler's office and handed Hitler's secretary a note. At last, it was a response from Mussolini. The Italian ambassador waited quietly as the German leader read the note. His eyes narrowed, and he started to bite his fingernails. Mussolini's reply read, as for the attitude of Italy in the case of military action, my point of view is as follows. If Germany attacks Poland, and Poland's allies counterattack Germany, I must inform you in advance that we will not take the initiative in military operations. In view of the present state of Italian war preparations, of which we have repeatedly and in good time informed you, Führer, this is my view, and since within a short time I must summon my cabinet, I beg you to let me know yours, Benito Mussolini. Mussolini, the tough guy Duce of fascist Italy, who had risen to power through a military coup and declared the next generation of the Roman Empire, was telling Hitler that he was not ready for war moments before it was scheduled to begin, that he would not fight alongside Hitler in the likely event that England and France joined the fight. His military, he said, was not ready. He was badly exposed by an attack from France and did not want to be dragged into this fight. Hitler was silent as he put down the letter. He did not immediately speak but his hand shook under the table. He looked up at the Italian ambassador and said, I will respond to the Duce shortly. You may go. The Italian ambassador bowed his head and left the office. As the door was closing, Hitler shouted from behind his desk in a volume that the Italian ambassador could hear. The Italians are behaving just as they did in 1914. Hitler now faced a conflict that could turn into a general war. If Poland's allies joined in, it would be a two-front war. A war that would be fought alone. It would not be a war that Germany could win. 
And yet, the order for invasion had been given three hours ago. The tanks were rolling, the armies marching, the planes flying. His war machine and a million and a half men were scheduled to cross the border in nine hours. What to do? At that moment, the head of the military high command, Hitler's senior most commander, General Keitel, had been called in earlier and had just arrived in Hitler's office. Now, Hitler needed to decide to either continue with the invasion as planned, or halt it and attempt to repair the situation before the final die was cast. General Keitel walked past the Italian ambassador into Hitler's office and closed the door behind him. The Italian ambassador listened from the waiting room, sitting in one of the chairs outside of Hitler's study. At first, all he could hear were muffled words. Then they became louder and higher pitched. It grew until he began to hear shouting. The Italian ambassador sank in his chair. Finally, Hitler's office door burst open like a bomb had just gone off inside. Running out of the office was General Keitel, a man who did not run. But now he was in a full sprint, papers flying from his hands, shouting to his aide as he ran, The invasion must be stopped! The world, as it now seemed, was given a stay of execution of six more days. I'm Michael Trapani, and this is How to Start a War. Over the course of this story, you have heard me say that this is a story from the past that can help us understand our world today. And while you have heard a story from the past, it's finally time to speak clearly about how it helps us understand the world today. And before this story ends, you will hear it. This story is about what happens when good people do nothing to stop the worst people on Earth while they still can. Let's conclude. The final chapter, chapter eight, Catastrophe. Hitler had just ordered to stop the invasion, hours after the advance had been given. It almost wasn't stopped. The German invading armies, the million-and-a-half-sized German invading force, halted abruptly, just as it was about to reach the Polish border. Some divisions were too far away from their senior commanders when the order to stop came in. So field commanders had to actually fly planes and air gliders to catch up to the troops, landing in fields in front of their advancing army, desperately waving them off and telling them about the last-minute order to halt. At some parts of the border, actual fighting had already begun between German and Polish forces, but because border incidents were now such a regular occurrence, the Polish believed that they were in just another skirmish. Little did they know that the full invasion force of the German Wehrmacht was just a few miles behind them. The skirmishes died down as the orders to stop came in, and once again there was quiet on the border. The invasion would not be stopped a second time. After the scrubbed invasion on August 26th, Hitler seemed to transform. His uncertainty and hesitation from the days before 
were now gone, in its place a cold resolve. He gave a new order. Rather than starting the war early on August 26th, it would begin six days later, on the day Hitler had set from the beginning, September 1st. With the extra week, Hitler would prepare his country for war. An announcement was given over the radio that said, starting tomorrow, food, coal, and shoes would be rationed. In the streets of Berlin, not stormtroopers, but regular infantry soldiers marched through the city, heading eastward towards the front. Berliners looked on, realizing finally that this was not like the threats against Austria and Czechoslovakia. This was different. Goebbels' propaganda factory was working on overtime. Wall-to-wall, sensationalized coverage of trouble at the Polish border was broadcast on the radio, written in papers, and shown in film. The trouble, according to the German propaganda narrative, was being caused by Polish troops, themselves pushing into German territory and wreaking havoc on German border towns. The message was hammered into the German citizenry that Poland was provoking a war, attacking German positions and harassing German border villagers. Headlines plastered across every German newspaper. Enough is enough. Chaos in Poland. Whole of Poland in war fever. One million men mobilized. Hitler called back General Keitel to finalize the invasion plan. This time, he gave him definitive orders. The invasion would take place on September 1st. Hitler now had six days to convince the English and the French to stay out of the war and shore up his flanks in the event that they didn't. It was time to reply to his friend, Mussolini. In his reply, he asked the Duce exactly what he would need in order to participate in the war. Mussolini, after meeting with his chiefs of staff, created a long list of needs, from military troops to equipment to manufacturing that would allow them to be war-ready on this new timeline, millions of tons of oil, hundreds of anti-aircraft guns, and there was more. All of it, the Duce added, would be needed before the fighting broke out in order for Italy to be prepared. It was a ridiculous ask by the Italian ambassador, one that would be impossible to meet by Hitler on his timeline. Mussolini also reminded Hitler politely that again, he would not be asking for so much if they had waited and used the timeline that they had discussed to start the war two years from now. Of course, he knew that Hitler wouldn't be able to fulfill these requests. Mussolini was looking for an out, so that he didn't have to get dragged into the conflict. Hitler replied that, while Germany can fulfill some of these requests, doing so before the attack would be impossible. He then seemed to free Mussolini of Italy's military obligations, at least for now. Hitler wrote in a conciliatory tone, Duce, I understand your position. All I ask is that you pin down the Allies with the propaganda and military demonstrations that you have already promised. Italy was to act as if they were days away from entering the conflict. Hitler thought that if they could at least make the French think Italy would invade them at any time, the French army would be pinned down and would not be able to focus all of their attention on Germany. Mussolini agreed. He would mobilize his troops and act as if he were planning to invade France, but take no real military action. It's now August 27th, six days before the war. In Berlin, Hitler's second-in-command, the stout Hermann Göring, was deploying all of his power politics in an effort to keep England out of the war. 
In most of the high-stakes international negotiations that you've heard of, most people imagine world leaders or diplomats sitting around a large conference table, reviewing the terms of another country, or sitting around a telephone negotiating with the other leaders directly. And that's largely right. But what's missing from that picture is a second channel of communications, a channel often made through personal connections, what's known as a back channel. These unofficial connections between countries have a mixed record of success, and it's why they're often used as a last resort. Most of the major international incidents you've heard of had an official channel and a back channel, if for no other reason to provide intelligence or to make back-of-the-envelope agreements that could not go through official channels. Goring knew that while there was a good chance Germany would win a limited conflict with Poland, he did not believe, unlike his Führer, that England and France would stay out of it. He felt like he had to do something, even if it was a long shot, to prevent the worst-case scenario for Germany. Let's be clear, this wasn't for any noble reason. It wasn't because he didn't also want to annihilate Poland, but because he, the man in charge of the German economy knew that the Third Reich could not withstand a world war. At least, not yet. And so, he employed the services of someone he knew, an old friend and Swedish businessman named Birger Dalarus, to set up a back channel between England and Germany, to get some real negotiations beyond the official proceedings. Who was this Swedish businessman, Dolores? He was a rich landowner that had married into an even richer German family, and had since built a strong network of executives and politicians in Germany and England. He was currently living in England and had developed some recent connections in the British cabinet. He claimed to be a so-called expert in the British way of doing things. On Goring's request, the Swedish businessman Dolores reached out to his contacts in the British government to see where they stood. His British contacts responded to Dolores, saying that the British government would like to find a peaceful resolution to the situation and wanted time from the Germans to attempt to do it. Upon receiving this letter, Dolores told Goring about it, and Goring thought that if Hitler heard about the British willingness to negotiate too, he might listen to reason and come to an agreement with them without bloodshed. So, Goring took Dolores with him to deliver the British message to Hitler. It was midnight on August 27th. Goring asked for Hitler to be woken up. While Göring was in the Führer's room, Dolores waited patiently in Hitler's study. Never having met the German dictator personally, he had no idea what to expect. In the middle of the night, the office was quiet and made the wait feel longer. Finally, the door opened and Hitler came into the office in what seemed like a daze. Hitler, like many in the German high command at the time, was probably on a series of powerful drugs when he was woken up. Drugs to sleep, drugs to wake up, drugs for energy, drugs for relaxation. His quack personal doctor carried a series of injections with him wherever he went, it's hard to pinpoint which particular drugs Hitler was on during this meeting. The Fuhrer sat down and looked out, seeming to be somewhere else, in his own head, not quite there. The nervous Dolores realized that it was his turn to speak. 
he pulled out the letter from the British government from his pocket, unfolded it, cleared his throat, and prepared to read it. He opened his mouth to speak, but just as he was about to begin, Hitler shot up from his chair and began to pace around the dark room. What seemed like a bolt of lightning began to animate him. He started to mutter to himself under his breath. It was almost as if he was unaware that Dolores and Goring were still with him in the room. Minutes went by of uninterrupted pacing and muttering. Slurred sentences mashed together as if his brain was moving faster than his ability to articulate thoughts. Then, all of a sudden, Hitler froze in the middle of the room and stood still in silence. Dolores wasn't sure what to do, his mouth still open from when he was about to read the letter. He stood still too, waiting for something to happen. Then, in the middle of the room, the frozen Hitler unfroze, straightened his back, and began to speak clearly and with a full voice. If there will be war, then I will build U-boats, build U-boats, build U-boats, 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 U-boats. Hitler then lifted his head, raised his arm in front of him, opening his hands, and posed as if he was speaking in front of a crowd at a rally. He began to flail his arms around and beat his chest with his fist. He began to shriek. I will build airplanes, build airplanes, 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 airplanes. I will annihilate my enemies. Dolores watched, horrified at this phantom in front of him. His worried eyes shifted to Goring to see how he would react. But Goring was calm, sitting in his chair near the wall, looking on at Hitler, as if this was completely normal behavior. The rest of the meeting went on like this. Eventually, Goring and Dolores got Hitler to propose some terms to the English, which, if accepted, would prevent Germany from attacking Poland. The terms were ridiculous. Everything from a military alliance with Britain, to the British helping Germany take Danzig from Poland, to demanding that all of the German colonies that were taken away from them at the end of the Great War were to be returned. Dolores was not permitted to write any of these down. He had to memorize all of them in his head. He left the Fuhrer and got on a plane to London. Five days before the war. rationing and control of exports have now been introduced in many countries. Railway traffic in Germany is to be still further restricted, and in future the railways will not undertake to carry any private passengers. In Paris today, 47 special trains will each take a thousand schoolchildren to various places in the provinces to be safe from air raids. All Paris cafes and restaurants have now been ordered to close at night from 11 o'clock onwards. Car headlights are banned and motorists are warned to drive very slowly. All French broadcasting stations are handed over from today to the military authorities. President Roosevelt has stated that only ships carrying defensive weapons would be allowed to enter the United States in future. Anti-aircraft units and additional pursuit planes of the United States Army are now guarding the Panama Canal zone and military guards are being placed on vessels using the canal. Round London, 110 mechanical excavators began work at 7 this morning excavating earth for sandbags. Dolores landed in London on Sunday morning and was picked up by a government car that rushed him to Downing Street to convey Hitler's terms, as ridiculous as they were, to the British government. Dolores arrived at Downing Street, expecting to meet with his personal contacts. Instead, the Swedish businessman was ushered into a different part of the building, and eventually led into a private room, 
As he walked in, his eyes widened as he saw not some associate, but the Prime Minister himself, Neville Chamberlain, sitting there with his foreign secretary, the Earl of Halifax. Dolores didn't waste any time. He fumbled through his briefcase and pulled out the notes he had made on the plane ride, then laid out Hitler's terms. He also noted that his meeting with Hitler was very calm and composed. Chamberlain listened to the terms and let them sink in. There were some differences between these terms and the ones sent to his office through the official channels, but nowhere near what he believed Poland would accept. They still demanded that the Polish corridor be turned over to Germany. They still demanded Danzig. At the end of the demands, Chamberlain heard the phrase that he was all too familiar with, that Hitler would guarantee the new Polish borders once this deal was made. Guarantee. After Munich, Chamberlain realized that Hitler's guarantees meant nothing. Chamberlain knew that Hitler's terms would be a tough sell. He knew that while Poland might possibly consider exchanging Danzig in place of a total war, they would not come to the table on handing over the corridor, giving Germany free access to Polish territory, and risk cutting off their route to the sea. He knew that Poland would sooner fight than do that. The British government would issue two replies, one formal to their foreign secretary, directly to the German Foreign Office, by way of the British ambassador to Germany, Neville Henderson. It would read, Britain has a solemn desire for a good understanding between Germany and Great Britain. Not a single member of the government thinks differently. Great Britain is bound to honor her obligations to Poland. We believe that German-Polish differences must be settled peacefully. The unofficial reply was spoken to Dolores, who began to memorize it in his head. That response said, We do not want to have any discussion on colonies for as long as Germany is mobilized for war. With regard to Polish boundaries, we would want them to be guaranteed not just by Germany, but by the five great powers. Concerning the Polish corridor, we propose that you begin negotiations with Poland immediately. And what was different about this unofficial reply? Honestly, not much. It was more context, but no new terms different from the official reply. If nothing else, while the official reply could be read as firm demands that shut the door for further negotiations, the unofficial reply at least seemed open to discuss some of Hitler's demands, and it took a slightly more friendly and pragmatic tone. None of that was reassuring to Dolores, who got on a plane back to Berlin to convey the response to Göring. He arrived that night and gave Göring the update. Neither man believed that it would be of interest to Hitler, but Göring said he would convey it to Hitler anyway. Dolores would wait at his hotel room for instructions. Both men went to sleep that night with a shred of hope. August 28th, four days before the war. The news of Europe as it occurs. The world is now awaiting the arrival in Berlin of Sir Neville Henderson, British ambassador to Germany, who took off from England's Heston Airdrome nearly three hours ago, flying to Berlin with the British cabinet's answer to German Chancellor Adolf Hitler. This is London. The first defense order was issued here today. Power is given to order compulsory evacuation. In other words, if the government says go, you've got to go whether you like it or not. Hello, America. Hello, CBS. This is Berlin. The sands are running fast. Tonight, here in Berlin, we should have a decision whether it's to be peace or war. 
And Sir Neville Henderson, the British ambassador, is due to arrive any minute now from London. Word has sifted through this afternoon that the British government cannot accept the demands which Herr Hitler made public last night, namely a return of Danzig and the corridor to Germany. In the meantime, Germany seemed already on a complete war footing today. Housewives stood in lines beginning early this morning to get their ration cards. It was the first time since the war that these cards had made their appearance. And the people who had hardly believed a couple of days ago that war was possible certainly looked grimmer as they stood patiently waiting for their cards. Squadrons of big bombers have also been roaring low over the city in formation. In other words, though the talking stage has not yet been completely abandoned, the grim preparation for the worst goes on. Well, all depends now on the talks which will be beginning here in a few minutes between Herr Hitler and the British ambassador. In the morning of the 28th, the British ambassador to Germany, Neville Henderson, arrived in Berlin and was driven to the Reich Chancellery to deliver the official British government response to Hitler's demands. Ambassador Henderson was ushered into Hitler's office and began to read the official reply that you just heard. Henderson finally said that the way in which an agreement would be made mattered, that they would not allow a repeat of the intimidation tactics that Hitler had used on Austria and Czechoslovakia. After Henderson finished reading the communication to Hitler, the British ambassador began to explain additional context of the note. But Hitler cut him off and began to rant, as he always did, about the crimes that Poland had committed against the hundreds of thousands of Germans who lived in Danzig and the Corridor, that he had already delivered a generous offer to Poland, and that from now on, nothing short of Danzig and the Corridor would be acceptable to him. I am not bluffing, Hitler said. You would be making a big mistake if you think that I am. Henderson stood firm. I am aware that you are not bluffing, Herr Chancellor. The British Empire is not bluffing either. Hitler then turned to his foreign minister, Ribbentrop, and said, Summon Goring so that we may discuss these terms. He then turned back to Henderson. I need to give more thought to a reply. It will be ready in the morning. You may go. Henderson left the Chancellery, wiring back to London that he had delivered the message, and that the meeting was of a friendly atmosphere. That night, Holland, which bordered Germany, ordered a general mobilization of their military. August 29th, three days before the war. There were reports uh, today of a possible mediation by Mussolini. They were emphasized in Rome, and uh, there was indication that uh, some uh, satisfaction would be felt with such a move in Berlin. A Rome dispatch says that the Italian press, as if by signal, emphasized that all the world was looking to Mussolini to avert war. That while the world is on the edge of a European catastrophe, even more insistent in general are the appeals being made to Premier Mussolini. A last-minute miracle is talked about. Direct intervention by Premier Mussolini is mentioned as a means for saving peace. At this critical moment, it's important to pause and remind ourselves where everyone stands. For the British, their position was finally crystallizing. They were not against a peaceful negotiation. In fact, they preferred it. What they would no longer do, however, is negotiate one-on-one -on -one with Germany on behalf of an ally without their presence to decide their fate. The British also believed that Hitler was lying when he said that he wanted a peaceful resolution with Poland. 
and therefore any claims to that effect must be treated with skepticism. Much of this was to avoid another Munich embarrassment, where powerful countries sacrificed a smaller country in order to preserve peace at all costs, only to realize how deceived they all were. As they now knew, Hitler's promises to maintain borders in Czechoslovakia were not kept. Hitler was now stronger as a result, and posed a larger threat now more than ever. But, as any diplomat will tell you, continuing talks until the very last minute is essential for the mission of peace. You never really know what the other side will do. They might just surprise you. And if you can look back in the days leading up to a war and say that you tried everything you could, that you kept the conversation alive until it was no longer possible, and that you stuck to your principles, well, that counts for something, right? Right? That's where the British stood. As for Germany, Hitler planned to start the war with Poland on September 1st. Period. Nothing, not England, not France, not the whole of the world would stop him from that. However, he still believed that England and France would not actually fight. This belief was reinforced almost hourly by the wily foreign minister Ribbentrop, freshly confident from his negotiations with Stalin, had thought that he had it all figured out. He whispered in Hitler's ear over and over again that England would never throw themselves into a war just for the sake of Poland. One way or another, there would be war. It would begin in three days. Three days. Hitler had just 72 hours left to either convince England and France to stay out of the war or offer them an out that they could point to to help them justify inaction to their people. In the early hours of August 29th, Hitler, Ribbentrop, and Goering discussed how they would respond to the British note. And they decided that they would lay a trap. Hitler would begin to lay the trap in his response to Britain. It was important at this moment that Hitler still appear to be very much open to peace. At 1.30 in the morning, Hitler and Göring phoned the Swedish businessman Dolores to give him Germany's unofficial reply, that the British note was highly acceptable, and that there was now every hope that the threat of war was behind them. Dolores, the amateur diplomat, was thrilled. Unlike the experienced foreign officials, he had not yet been tricked by the German government's misleading, yesing strategy that always preceded something that they wanted to do. The naive Swede put in a long-distance phone call to the British Foreign Office in London to tell them the good news. Then, Dolores met with Goring to prepare him for a meeting that he would have later with the British ambassador. He greeted Goring by pumping his fist into the air, saying, There will be peace! Peace is secured! Later that evening, when the British Ambassador Henderson arrived at the Reich Chancellery to receive the German reply, it became clear just how premature such a reaction truly was. Hitler sat behind his desk and was flanked by Foreign Minister Ribbentrop and the corpulent Hermann Göring. Ribbentrop handed Henderson the official German reply on a piece of paper. The British ambassador sat down in a chair facing Hitler's desk and began to read it. It began, as most of Hitler's notes did, with a written diatribe of the crimes committed against Germany and the so-called Germans living in Poland, that the Poles' barbaric action and maltreatment was a cry to heaven, 
that the situation at the border was no longer tenable, and that a German counter-response was not a question of days or weeks, but mere hours. At the end of the official response, Hitler seemed to leave the door open for negotiations, writing that while the German government no longer shared the British position that a peaceful resolution could be reached with Poland, they would be open to trying. And this is where Hitler laid his trap. Henderson got to the final paragraph of the note. It read, The German government accordingly agree to accept the British government's offer in securing to Berlin a Polish emissary with full powers. They count on the arrival of this emissary on Wednesday, August 30th, 1939. This is one of those documents that were meant to be read, not just for the people it was addressed to, but for the eyes of history. On the surface, it sounds harmless and even cordial. Yes, it seems like Hitler is saying, we are open to peace, and we will meet with a Polish representative to hash this out as soon as possible. But by now, Henderson understood that the devil in all of Hitler's so-called concessions were in the details. Let's break this note down. Hitler was offering to negotiate, but only on very specific conditions. He had said that it must be with a Polish representative with full powers. Do the math. There's only one representative in a country that can negotiate peace deals, the prime minister. So it had to be with the prime minister of Poland. Hitler also said that the meeting with Hitler had to be in Berlin, alone. So, Hitler was demanding to see the leader of a country on his own turf to negotiate a territorial dispute. Sound familiar? It should. It was the same tactic Hitler used on Chancellor Schuschnigg from Austria and President Hacha from Czechoslovakia. Not only did Hitler demand the leader appear before him, he was demanding that it happen by tomorrow. With all of the preparations needed for such a meeting, this was nearly an impossible task. Of course, this was part of Hitler's trap as well. Because if the Polish prime minister didn't show up, Hitler could claim that the Poles refused their offer for a diplomatic solution, labeling them as unwilling to negotiate. See how that worked? Hitler, Ribbentrop, and Goring were silent on their side of the table, watching Henderson read the document. When Henderson got to the last paragraph, his eyebrows raised. He looked up at Hitler and said with a disapproving tone, That sounds very much like an ultimatum. Hitler scoffed. It is not an ultimatum. Ribbentrop chimed in. The demand for speed and power of the negotiator is only a response to the urgency of the situation. Two large armies are poised at the border facing each other. While Germans continue to be massacred in Poland, if this is to be settled peacefully, it must be done now. But Henderson knew what happened to heads of government that met with Hitler to negotiate. He shot back. And how can we know if this Polish representative would be well received? Would negotiations be conducted on an equal footing? Of course, Hitler shot back, feigning insult. But the British ambassador did not seem convinced. This made Hitler angry, who began to shout at Henderson. You don't care at all what is happening to Germans in Poland. Then Henderson began to raise his voice to meet the verbal attack. The meeting devolved into a shouting match between Hitler and Henderson, and was ended early. Henderson stormed out of the Reich Chancellery. As he walked down the steps, he looked out into the street with a sense of angry hopelessness. That day, 
Switzerland ordered a general mobilization of their frontier military. August 30th, two days until the war. of avoiding war has not increased, which is a very temperate remark, but that the strategic position is regarded as improved. Now that, of course, refers primarily, I presume, to the situation of political strategy, but it's just possible that it may also refer to military and naval strategy as well. Now that the British government was aware of Hitler's terms, they communicated them to their ally, Poland. At 2 a.m., they wired the Polish foreign minister everything that they had heard, that the Germans wanted the Polish prime minister to go to Berlin, that the Germans will demand not only Danzig, but the Polish corridor as well, and that the Germans wanted him to arrive by tomorrow. Of course, they knew just how unreasonable Hitler's demands were. They knew that Danzig was under Polish protection, they knew that the Polish corridor was lawful Polish territory. They knew that it would be impossible to prepare and deploy a high statesman to Berlin in less than 24 hours with a task of joining a one-sided negotiation. They also knew that Germany would not truly negotiate with Poland on equal terms, that even if Poland could produce a negotiator in time, it would be a horrible repeat of the embarrassment of Shushnig in Austria and Hacha from Czechoslovakia. But given such high stakes, the British Foreign Office was going to go through the motions anyway. In only a few short hours, the Polish Foreign Minister told Chamberlain that, unsurprisingly, they would reject this German proposal. They would rather fight than subject themselves to such humiliation. And so, it was left for Ambassador Henderson to inform Germany of Poland's response. He arrived in a more tense mood at the German Foreign Office to meet with Ribbentrop and give him the Polish reply. It was midnight. Ambassador Henderson was shown into a room with Foreign Minister Ribbentrop and Hitler's personal translator, a man named Schmidt. Ribbentrop's English was very good, but he refused to speak it to Henderson. Henderson's German was good as well, but in such high-stakes negotiations, it was critical that direct translations could be made available. Both men were seated across from each other. Ribbentrop's arms were folded as Henderson began to read the formal reply from His Majesty's government. The situation between Poland and Germany is understood by the British government, and that it, like the German government has also stated, wants the matter to be resolved peacefully. However, the terms that had been offered to Britain would be in direct conflict with its obligations to its ally, Poland. As Henderson read, Ribbentrop knew that a rejection was coming. He fidgeted around in his chair like an impatient child. He shifted his weight in annoyance and irritation, even rage as he listened. Finally, Ribbentrop interrupted Henderson, shouting, Do you have anything more to say? I am not finished. It is also unrealistic to expect an emissary from Poland as early as today, at the deadline that Herr Hitler has set. Ribbentrop now jumped out of his chair, enraged. Anything else? Henderson stopped reading and looked up trying to maintain his composure. Then asked Ribbentrop, If the Poles could send someone to negotiate, what would those terms be? It doesn't matter anymore, Ribbentrop shot back. It's already midnight. Our deadline has passed. Henderson persisted. Ribbentrop, this is our last chance as statesmen to secure peace. 
So Ribbentrop looked down at his desk, remembering that he had a document that outlined what the German terms would be to Poland. He picked it up robotically and held it in front of his eyes. Then he proceeded to read the terms out loud, quickly, rushing through them as if he wanted to get all of them out in one breath. He speed-read the terms in German so quickly that Henderson could not keep up. He could only get the gist of just six of them. When Ribbentrop finished reading, he lowered the document from his face and shot a gaze back at Henderson, saying, So you see, Sir Henderson, the situation is damned serious. Now it was Henderson's turn. The British ambassador jumped out of his chair, putting his face inches away from Ribbentrop. Both men stared each other down. The translator, still sitting in the room, thought they were about to fight. Henderson pointed his finger in Ribbentrop's face and lowered his voice to a whisper. This is not the language of a statesman in such a serious situation. Then he reverted back to his mission. I will need to review the terms that you have just read. Please give me a copy of the document so that I may submit them to my government. But Ribbentrop didn't move. I cannot give you the document. At this, even the translator looked up, surprised. It was highly unusual to not provide a written copy of the terms, especially at such a critical moment, when coming to an agreement required the review of every detail. The translator thought he might have misheard Ribbentrop. But then, an uneasy smile grew over the German foreign minister's face. He crumpled the document in his fist and let it fall onto his desk. I cannot give you the document. It is now out of date. The Polish emissary did not arrive by midnight. It was at this time that it became clear to Henderson that these German terms were not being made seriously. It was just constructed as an alibi that Hitler could give to his people and to the world that he had made every attempt to find a peaceful solution. It was also offered as an out that the Allies could take, allowing them to say that Poland did not come to the negotiating table at this critical hour. The trap was now closed completely. Henderson, exhausted, left the Chancellery in an even more defeated posture than the night before. He returned home, writing in his journal, The last hope of peace has vanished. And yet, he would stay the course of his mission. He called his Polish counterpart and took him through the terms that he remembered. He acknowledged that they were wholly unreasonable, but felt that it was his duty to at least convey them. He advised that they find some representative descent to Berlin, so at least a dialogue could be put in place. The two men both knew that even that would be near impossible, but they would try. Until the very end. Miles away, in a small German village near the border of Poland, something very peculiar is happening. A local farmer is being arrested by the Gestapo without being charged with a crime. He's getting thrown into a car and sped off to a neighboring city where the confused farmer is detained, not in a jail cell, but in a storage room overnight. While the SS Gestapo is known for their meticulous record-keeping, no such record of this farmer's arrest or his passing through Nazi facilities are captured in any documents. It's as if his arrest was made to be untraceable. August 31st. 
the last day of peace. This is the regional program. Here is the fourth news, copyright reserved. The German wireless announced tonight the German government's reply to a British communication and gave the German government's proposals for a settlement of the Polish problem in the following 16 points. The German announcer who read out these proposals concluded by saying, the Führer and the German government have waited for two days in vain for a reply to these proposals and therefore regard these proposals as practically rejected. It's eight o'clock in the morning. In London, the senior-most British diplomat and Henderson's boss, Foreign Secretary Halifax, have been frantically communicating with the Polish government all night. While Halifax didn't think the Poles should accept the German proposal, nor did they think they should send an emissary to Berlin only to be bullied into submission by Hitler, Halifax was pleading with the Poles to at least open a direct communication with the Germans. Not only was this advice the best option they had in preventing a war, but it also had its mind on history. Halifax had at last become aware of Hitler's trap, proposing terms to the Poles that could not be met, and when they were not, throw their hands up in the air and say that Germany had exhausted all diplomatic options. Halifax was saying that silence on the part of the Polish government only helped the Germans make this case to the public, and he was trying to prevent that from happening, so that the world would see Germany's attack on Poland for what it really would be. The Polish foreign minister said they would send a reply directly to the Germans by midday. 1.45 p.m. Halifax shot off another frantic telegram to the ambassador in Warsaw, asking for an immediate update. He learned that the Poles had told the Germans that they were ready to negotiate directly. The Poles also telegrammed the British privately that, if invited to go to Berlin, they would not go, citing the mistreatment of President Hacha of Czechoslovakia and Chancellor Schuschnigg of Austria. What the Polish ambassador didn't know, however, was that their encryption codes had been broken. The Germans were reading every communication going in and out of the Polish embassy. 6.15 p.m. The worn-out Polish ambassador arrived at the German foreign office where Ribbentrop was waiting. Before entering Ribbentrop's office, the Polish diplomat found the strength to straighten his back. He walked in and read his government's response. Last night, the Polish government was informed of a possibility of direct negotiations between the Polish and German governments. The Polish government are favorably considering the British government's suggestion and will make a formal reply on the subject during the next few hours. Well, Ribbentrop shot back at the Polish ambassador, have you come as a representative, empowered to negotiate? The ambassador said simply, For the time being, I am only empowered to read the communication that I have just read. Ribbentrop gritted his teeth. I had thought you would come here as a fully empowered delegate. Then he dismissed him. The Polish diplomat left the German Foreign Office and raced back to the Polish Embassy for more orders. His car arrived. He got out of the car and walked up the steps to the first phone he could find. He picked up the receiver, but the line was dead. He went to the phone in his office. The line was dead. Every phone in the building was dead. The sinking pit in the Polish ambassador's stomach opened into an abyss. 
their phone lines had been cut. To be continued.